There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 35th anniversary of Fatal Attraction, while this summer also marks the 30th anniversary of Patriot Games. I spoke to actress Ann Archer about memories of both films, as well as clear and present danger when she and her husband Terry Jastrow stopped by in 2017 to discuss his political fiction novel, The Trial of Prisoner 043. I'm Terry Jastrow, the author of the recently published novel, the Trial of Prisoner 043. And I'm Ann Archer, and uh, I am the wife of this absolutely amazing author, Terry Jastrow. <laughs> <laughs> biggest fan, biggest yeah. advocate. That's awesome. I have to, if we don't talk about your Oscar nomination while you're in here, then what, what am I doing here? I'm a failure. <laughs> um, Fatal Attraction, one of the greatest movies of all time. That movie still creeps me out every time I see it, but... Um, <laughs> So obviously, if our listeners don't remember, Anne plays Mike Douglas's wife. Um, just real quick memories of, of working on that set. Um, what was it like working with Mike and, and playing a husband-wife there in such a, a strained marriage like that? Yeah, well, it was great. He's uh, he's a great actor. You know, there aren't a lot of male movie stars who really try and make sure that their female leads have their share in front of the camera. And he actually is not egotical, egotistical that way. He will he will share the moments always on film, and I, I always admired him for that and appreciated that. Uh, it was great working with him. We had an amazing director, Adrian Lyne, who really uh, created the... The horror, oh, yeah. you know. Well, we saw him do Jacob's the, Ladder too. So that yeah, guy so can we know <laughs> we we know that he he can really deliver that. So that was really terrific, and um, we thought we were making this nice, on the cutting edge domestic drama. We had no idea that it would have the legs that it has had and still has to this day, and would still cause people to argue over coffee after they see yeah. it. So seriously, well, I think oh, it yeah. scared a whole the whole world. I think. It it really did. Like Man. it had that effect. People thought twice after that movie. But yeah. uh, one of the greatest villains of all time, Alex Forrest. Right. But, I mean, you take her out in the end, right? Isn't, don't yeah, you fire the gun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> we didn't. We obviously we didn't have really scenes together until the very end. Uh, so we weren't necessarily on the set at the ta- same time. But um, I must say, she wrote me one of the most beautiful letters I've ever gotten from an actress after the movie was over, with tremendous. Uh, praise and wonderful words for my performance. And I, I thought that was a, a very classy thing to do. I was awesome. really impressed by that. Take me into Oscar night. You get that nomination for that movie. Are, a, are you surprised and shocked? And B, how crazy was that whole experience of being an Oscar nominee? Yeah. Well, there there had been a lot of uh, Oscar buzz talk prior to that about the film, the director, the actors. 
Um, so I had my fingers crossed. And of course, we were up at the crack of dawn to hear the announcement on uh, television and were blown away. And um, it was a very wonderful, exciting time in my life. And, uh, you know, I got to present at the Oscars three, three years in a row after that. And so we, we, we had a run that was really a lot of fun. And you guys are married at this point? Is this, or is oh, this, yeah, okay, had okay. been. So you got had to go through all that with Baby and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so um, at that point, you know, you you could pr- probably do anything you wanted in, in Hollywood. Did you pick up some Clancy novels? Is, how did you decide to go into those, you know, those those movies? Well, I, I and... wish I could. Obviously, I was put up f- for them, but um, Sherry Lansing, who was... Uh, produced Fatal Attraction was also then head of Paramount, and those both of the Clancy films were made at Paramount. So uh, when that was happening, uh, I'm sure they and it's always the director's decision. Philip Noy said, "I want to meet Ann Archer. I think she might be great." To play Harrison's wife, and that's how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Ryan's wife. There you go. Yeah. You're the actress for the Tom Clancy book to movies with Harrison <laughs> Ford, true. like Patriot Games, uh-huh. Clear and Present Danger. What was it like working with Harrison on those sets? Well, Harrison is uh, first of all, he's a he's a wonderful human being. He's he's lovely. He's professional. Uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about him. And um, the other thing is he's to, he would like to do it all himself physically and everything, and he pretty much does unless he injures himself, which is almost unavoidable when you shoot action mm-hmm. movies, obviously. So, you know, I saw him really putting himself out to uh, deliver the physicality of the scenes that uh, he shot as well as... Uh, all the acting moments and everything else. So we had a great time. It was an amazing company with great producers and a great studio behind it, Paramount Studio at that time. And um, yeah, it was a really happy experience. We had a lot of fun. And just uh, just relating it to the book a little bit, because um, you, you have all this experience on bringing sort of these uh, political thriller novels to the screen. What sort of, how involved was, was Tom Clancy on those shoots? Do you know, like at, at a script level and then also on set, was he lingering around? I never saw him on the set. I think before uh, the movie was made, though, uh, he probably, I've forgotten now, but I think he had some you know, viewpoints on the script a bit. But um, no, I mean, they had the rights and they faithfully told the story as best they could, I think. So, uh, and I don't think there was any contention. I think, I'm sure he was very proud of those movies. Yeah, rest in peace. And he was a Baltimorean, I believe. He's from around here, I think. Oh, really? Oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, did you ever get to to meet him or... No, I didn't, as a matter of fact. But I did want to say one other thing why this book uh, it was so important to me is that I have an organization called Artists for Human Rights that I founded in 2006. And so I'm a big human rights advocate, and I work with all kinds of organizations, human rights organizations all over the world fighting for human rights. So uh, for me, this page turner, because <laughs> it is really speaks to the issue of human rights. And of course, I love that. So it's it's there for people who are politically and socially involved, and it's there for people who just want a great read. It's my, it's my great dream that uh, the trial of Prisoner 043 become uh, 
you know, an entertainment uh, project in, in, in some capacity. I actually wonder whether or not the story is too massive and too dense to be uh, accommodated in, in, a, in a movie. And I, I'm not sure about it being accommodated in a play. My, my I say hope we go for it. I think it'd be an awesome movie. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, there's a lot, a lot more right. people, a lot more clever than I am sure. about it. But I think it would also make a really interesting multiple episode right. television series. Like a, a mini-series. Mini series. Yeah, yeah or just like, you know, some of those great shows, whether like it's Taboo or OJ. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's the perfect way to transition in the novel because, uh, you know, if, if you guys like those those political page turners, we, we I mean, the, these stories keep being told and now you're the one telling them. Yes. Uh, uh, I, I, would, I would like to say my pleasure, but because uh, it, <laughs> right. it's, I, I tell you, writing, it's also a, writing subject, a, yeah. a novel, Jason, I mean, I, I've done, you know, Super Bowls and U.S. Opens. And yeah, you're an Emmy winning and, uh, director. Of yes, uh, some sports uh, coverage yeah, thank too. Thank you, along with a lot of really amazing people at ABC yeah. Sports, and have written and directed a movie, and written and directed some plays. Writing a novel, which was this is my first one. I, I, I describe it as like a, a literary ascent up Everest, barefoot <laughs> and with no map. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, it's yeah. never ending. And, and and because in a novel, you're it's just you go there, there, but for the grace of God, you go alone. Right. I mean, every word, every thought. Uh, so is it, but it was great fun, and, and it sort of had to be. I just I couldn't stand not writing this novel. I don't know about writing another novel. Uh, <laughs> You want to do Everest again? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no, bring I'm, a map this time? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted because there's an endless number of stories. Yeah. But I'm certainly proud of it. I'm glad it's out. The Trial of Prisoner 043. I think people ought to read it. I hope they're entertained by it. And as importantly, I hope they're informed and engaged by it. Well, obviously, like you said, we're here to talk the trial of prisoner 043. Um, let's hit him with the basic premise really quick. Yes. Uh, so it's a novel, meaning, of course, it's fiction. It takes place in the not-too-distant future, and it imagines that George W. Bush is abducted off a golf course in Scotland and transported to the International Criminal Court in The Hague to stand trial for war crimes of which he's accused in connection with the Iraq War. Was this a page-turner when you read it, Ann? Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> a page-turner. It's very suspenseful, and my God, he did three and a half years of research. He three times visited the International Criminal Court at The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, he read everything there is to know about it, and uh, he's made a very tight novel that is definitely a page-turner. <laughs> now, when does when does the seed for this get planted? Because I assume is it around the invasion of Iraq, or when you know when are you, when do you this start percolating in your mind to write? Yes, it was. Uh, uh, there were so many things about the Iraq War that just didn't make any sense to me, and we can talk about some of them. Uh, and that coupled with the fact that it was seemed so illogical and seemed like it could have been avoided and should have been avoided, uh, and the fact that it wasn't. Um, and also, I was a young guy during the Vietnam War, and that was a terrible war that should have never been fought, and it was at, at a huge cost of American lives and Vietnamese lives, et cetera, not to mention the U.S. Treasury. And bottom line, Jason, is I love my country, but I just think we fight too many unnecessary wars that, that could be avoided. I'm fascinated by the parallels to, to Vietnam, for sure. I, yeah. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, no one would say that all wars are unnecessary because that, of course, wouldn't be true. We can think of World War One, World War Two, the Korean War. But nonetheless, there seems like an inevitable drumbeat 
for war every so often. And some of these wars just, just shouldn't happen. We have communication and sanctions and all kinds of things that, that we can uh, work, work, work with our allies and dealing with other people. But I just feel that there's a rush to war, um, often um, um, propelled by the urgency of, of our, our, some of our elected officials, some in the military, certainly big business and corporations that profit greatly by war. And they all have a, 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 an asset in the sense that mm-hmm. as, as long as bad news sells, the press uh, the, j- jumps onto that. And it seems, it seems to be that these wars are inevitable, and they are most certainly not. So I'm assuming now the 043 is, I get it now, it's the 43rd president. Aha. <laughs> yes, indeed. indeed. But, uh, okay. But the war itself, both political parties have really soured on the Iraq war. Why do you think that is? I mean, you saw President Obama run basically because, you know, he was against the Iraq war. And then even even Trump kind of was, uh, now the Republicans seem like to say that, that the Iraq war was a bad idea. Yes. Uh, you don't have to drill into the, the realities about the, the Iraq war to know that it was a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when we talk about the story of the Iraq War, it actually starts with 9-11, which of course was September 11 of 2001, and George W. Bush was, pre- was president, and following 9-11, there was a huge outpouring of compassion and 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 love for the United States. And but Bush had an approval rating of 90%, one of the highest ever. He had every legal justification mm-hmm. in the world to track down and bring Osama bin Laden and leaders of al-Qaeda to justice. But after more than a year, almost a year and a half, he didn't do it, and he began to shift the attention to Saddam Hussein, first trying to create linkage between Saddam and and 9-11. Now, there were 19 terrorists in 9-11, 15 from Saudi Arabia, two from the United Arab Emirates, one from uh, Egypt, and one from Lebanon, none from Iraq. Saddam had nothing mm-hmm. to do with 9-11. And yet, and yet on late night shows, we saw cabinet officials trying to link the two over and over again. Yeah, It was obvious in hindsight, but man, so many people got caught up in that. Indeed. And then when that was proven to be absolutely a fact, he then shifted the dialogue to weapons of mass destruction, the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq with, with Saddam. Which after, turned out not to be there. Absolutely. After hundreds of, of international weapons inspectors and U.S. weapons inspectors, and moreover, even when the coalition forces... Uh, 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 raided Iraq and engaged Iraq. Nobody ever found even one weapons of mass destruction because the fact is he didn't have them and had not had them since the 1980s. So it was a false pretext. We could call it a lie that engaged us in that war. And yet it started in March of, of uh, 2003 and it lasted for eight years and, and nine months. It was a horribly damaging, destructive war as we know. And now, I, now we're we're still mired in it. I mean, ISIS, everything else has is has stemmed exactly. from us going in there. And, yeah, and, yeah. I mean, just no, talk I mean, about how we're still dealing with that wound. Well, the fact of the matter is that it destabilized the Middle East, and uh, the the genesis of uh, the Islamic State came about because of the Iraq War. Uh, a n- number of those in the military in Iraq who were fired after we went into Iraq uh, now couldn't feed their families. They were out of jobs. They were disgruntled. There was no infrastructure. And many of them are the ones that formed the basis of the Islamic State. And it grew from there. Not to mention just regular civilians who resented an occupying power. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And we lost 
uh, 1 million Iraqi citizens and 4,491 American soldiers and 230,000 were uh, wounded either emotionally or, or physically in that war. And as Terry always likes to say, the reason there's so many in, in Vietnam, we lost 58,000 soldiers. Uh, why fewer in this war? Because we now have body armor that protects the vital organs more, and uh, we have better medicine, and we can get to our soldiers faster. So we have 230,000 wounded. Uh, so it's a terrible thing. And we've dislocated 3.3 million Iraqis, one-third of which are children. And and when you look at then what it poured into Syria— it is a disaster. If the loss uh, of human life isn't bad enough, and it is horrible, because you know when we when we consider it, the loss of one life right. for a, a, a wasted war is a tragedy, yep. and we've lost all those lives, as we've said, and and a, and a million Iraqi people who, by the way, were not our enemy. They did not present a clear and present danger to the United States at that time. To quote one of your wife's movies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Get right. to your point. Indeed. We have time to go into that. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and on top of that, uh, it's cost uh, the American uh, people more than $4 trillion. Now, for it's those been of quicksand us, for the, our Treasury Department. It's insane. It's a big suck. Every, it's insane. Yeah. And let, let, let's first understand that the Treasury is supplied supplied by us, we the people, yep. we pay our taxes mm -hmm. into the government treasury, and our elected officials are supposed to, you know, engage in the will of the people, not going uh, uh, to uh, to the other side of the world and invading a country that does not present a clear and present danger to the United States. So we have spent f more than four trillion dollars, and a trillion dollars, by the way, is a hundred billion. And we've spent between four and five fighting the war and now caring for our wounded warriors, which we sure as hell have to do. Mm -hmm. But let's just think for a moment of what we could use those dollars for yeah. to help the American people. Education, yeah. more schools, higher payment for, for teachers. Infrastructure. The list goes on and on. Well, yeah. in, indeed, fighting poverty, yeah. the dual problem of obesity and hunger. Yeah. Uh, mental a illness. Debt, mental uh, illness. Opioid crisis. Uh, There's so many on uses and it goes. of that. Yeah. This is what our elected officials should do with our treasury not fight wasted wars and don't you don't you guys think that um that all of that blood and treasure that you're talking about has created a a war and foreign entanglement fatigue amongst the american people like i think a lot um don't you think it, a lot of people are just worn out after decades in the middle east y yes but but that's exactly why i endeavored to write this this story yes we let's can't, get it back to the book <laughs> no, 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 but we can't afford yeah. uh to be bl blase and, yeah. and 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 eliminate and forget about this mm -hmm. because i think when you just chess play it out i think the only thing that can stop this repeating rush to war is an engaged and informed citizenry, mm -hmm. the people. It's like, after all, what stopped the Vietnam War? It was protest in the street. Hundreds of thousands of people walked out and said, we've had enough. Mm -hmm. And finally, the, the military and the U.S. government stopped that war. But my hope is that people will become more aware of the activity of their government officials, be more suspicious of fear-mongering, which happens a lot with government officials, the military, big business. After all, it was President Ike Eisenhower in his last public address before he left the, left the White House. Uh, 
warned us of the military-industrial complex, complex yeah. which is that unholy alliance between the military and big business, big corporations that profits hugely and wildly. So in a way, they begin the drumbeats, not the people. The government and big, big business begin the drumbeat with war, and the press picks it up and perpetuates it and even exaggerates it, in some way the, the, the American public is duped into these wars. So the only thing I would suggest that can help stop these wars is, is an aware and engaged citizens, but not after the war that starts. Before the, we get mm -hmm. to war, American people ought to stand up and fight against it. And let's not, let's not start war until every other possibility is exhausted before we have to resort to a war. You know, we're not just citizens citizens of the United States. We're citizens of the world. Mm -hmm. You talk about President 43, 44, 45. He's, he's, a, he's a citizen of not just America, but a citizen of the world and subject, therefore, not only to just U.S. law, but international criminal law. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. That's the game changer these days. The United Nations created uh, uh, the, uh, the interna international criminal law and the International Criminal Court, and it came a force in July of 2002. George Bush's started, war started in March of 2003, so he became the first leader of a superpower subject to international uh, criminal law. But all others behind him not only must be, remain legal with regard to, to national law, but also under the eye, watchful eyes of international criminal law as well. We've gone into a lot of the, the heavier social commentary parts of the book. Let's uh, flip the switch and start talking about it just as a pure piece of, you know, entertaining read now. Um, let's start talking about that a little bit because you called it a page turner. Ed. Yes. Um, explain, like, wh what about it makes it so gripping to you? Like, uh, I know I know we're talking about George W. Bush getting, you know, picked up on the golf course, but who is sort of the, the protagonist that we sort of follow through here? And, you know, uh, I probably will let Terry go into that more, <laughs> but certainly the prosecuting attorney, although it is a balanced story. It tells both sides. I mean, Bush uh, gathers together a very uh, forceful uh, defense team and the prosecution team is brilliant as well. Um, and it's a trial. You know, when you read any kind of trial or watch anything about a trial, I mean, it's fascinating. You're, you're pulled this way and that, or you're rooting for one side or the other. And it's very exciting. And he, because of all the time he spent at the ICC, he really captured the colorfulness of different characters, whether they're attorneys or even the witnesses, uh, and what the environment at the ICC is like so that it really reads like a great novel. Just to build on that a little bit, my, uh, uh, as a novelist, although it is a fascinating subject and has real clear historical uh, issues and, and in, it informs us about the future, at the beginning and at the end of the day, I, as a novelist, uh, set out to entertain uh, it is fascinating and informing, but I wanted it to be a page-turner, and it is a drama. And what is the thing that propels drama but conflict? And we can define conflict as two or more opposing forces in opposition and in colliding. And the greater the forces, the greater the collision and the greater the drama. So I set out from the beginning. I studied lots of things about international criminal law. I was greatly aided because many of the principals have written their own book, autobiographies, George W. Bush. Cheney, Rumsfeld, Laura Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, uh, Richard A. Clark, who was George W. Bush's uh, senior counterintelligence 
and, and te- uh, counterterrorism expert. They have all written now their books. So I was able to get in and literally lift their voice as it related to telling these the stories. And I wanted to do it for the authenticity of it. But another thing to say is that I created a very strong prosecution team of attorneys and an equally strong right. prosecu- uh, uh, defense attorneys in, in, in Bush's case. Because you need Be- both of those forces for the conflict. Indeed. Yeah. And as a writer, I wanted to advocate for both sides equally and aggressively so the reader could make up their mind for themselves with regard to guilt or innocence. And it's much more it's much more realistic that way. If you So I mean you mentioned and mentioned both sides and so are you. So what ammunition do you give to the defense team in this? What's their case that they that the Bush team goes in with it? Yes, okay. Well, uh, again, uh, I tried very hard to put this forward. Sure. Uh, 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 the, the 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 George Bush's defense. Um Actually, let me just digress for 60 sure, seconds, sure, and sure. I'll get to this. Sure. Uh, I, I, This is not a personal vendetta against sure. George W. Bush. I actually know him. When we met 50 years ago, when his daddy was a, a oil man in Midland, Texas, so was my dad. We played a Little League baseball against each other. He was on the <laughs> Cubs. I was on the Braves. I'm too modest to say who won, but the Cubs lost. Uh, I knew him in Houston when he was a young oil guy, and Ann and I even went and visited him in the governor's office at, at Texas. He's a very charming and, and you know loquacious guy. He could win almost any popularity contest, but governance— He did. He did. <laughs> he did. He did. But governance— is not about popularity. It's right. doing the will of the people, most especially when it comes to you know war and peace and and, this, and the sanctity of human life. But uh, uh, so he has a he has his reasons mm-hmm. uh, there to be found in his book and and others who who build the case of why that war was justified. Mm-hmm. It has something to do with he thought the threat of Saddam Hussein, something to do with our friends in the region, protection of oil. So he 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 does identify reasons which we faithfully, uh, you know, set forth in the argument. Is it your hope that President George W. Bush, A, reads it, and B, what do you think he would think if he read it? There's a question. <laughs> yeah, gosh, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, as I've mentioned, I hold no grudge against him, and I, I would hope that he that he that he thinks that it's a it's a it's a true and honest telling of the story, both sides. Uh, but I I suspect he might have tried to move on with it as life. He's painting his portraits and playing golf and things. I hold no animosity against him. I don't know whether he's uh, he'll read it or not. Um, I certainly haven't talked to him. So we, I assume it builds and builds in a, in, a, in a big courtroom sort of drama setting, and then, but we're not going to give away the ending. Not only that, but I will promise you this, Jason. I spent three and a half years researching and writing this story, and something happens. You may think you know what happens or the collection of things that might happen, but I will promise you, you do, do not know what happens in this novel. It's <laughs> There's my re- soundbite. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Okay. And in the end, do I mean, we do... It, it's, is it an ambiguous end, or we get a we get a verdict? We you get know a decision. What? The, here. the hard the hard the hard cover cost about twenty four bucks, and the <laughs> soft cover cost about fourteen or thirteen. But wherever books are sold, I, I would I would ruin the enjoyment yeah. and the discovery of the read. Okay, there you go. Perfect, perfect tease. Yeah, you don't want to give it all away here. Come no, on, you got to read the book, <laughs> and your readers don't and listeners don't want to know it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again. Uh, again, guys, it's called The Trial of Prisoner 043, Terry Jastro, Ann Archer. Thank you so much for coming in. This was fun. Hey, thank we went you. like a half hour. This was great. Wow. Well, we had fun, too. <laughs> All right, thank thanks you. Thanks for coming in. <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.